Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Change. One of the first things I noticed when I first discovered behavioral science was that when I gave talks about marketing and advertising, I got invited to marketing and advertising conferences. When I started talking about behavioral economics, I got invited to 10 Downing Street. Hi, I'm Julia Stainforth. And I'm Maddie Croucher. And we're the hosts of this podcast and editors of the Obehave blog. This week, our very own senior behavioral strategist, Dan Bennett, sat down with author Matt Watkinson to discuss his recent book, The Grid, the decision-making tool for every business, including yours. Matt is a customer experience expert. He captured hearts and minds with his first book, The 10 Principles Behind Great Customer Experiences. His writing style is simple and straightforward and is backed up by big smarts. Our founder, Rory Sutherland, once called him the Einstein of customer service. He works with organizations from multinationals to startups, and even did a stint at Ogilvy. On this episode, he talked to Dan about his most recent book, The Grid, which is a product of four years of research and aims to help anyone evaluate their business. So Matt, thank you so much for joining us today on the Obey podcast. The, the most interesting thing to start with, I think, is that you link the book to well-being. And I read the, the, the note to the Buddhist community. Can you tell us more about why that was? Oh, well, I, I think that your work life has a, a profound impact on your, your well-being, mental health, physical health. When things are going bad in the office, it's pretty easy for that to spill over into uh, other aspects of your life. And um, I think ultimately, you know, almost everybody has some kind of professional aspiration or or is in business in some way, albeit reluctantly, uh, for some people. So uh, there's a lot of fulfilment to be gained from achieving your kind of career goals and, and whatever it might be, whether you know, you're trying to get to the top of a corporation or whether you dream of starting your own business or those kinds of things. Pursuing those kind of goals can be really rewarding and, and, and fulfilling. And, and that's you know, part of what I think makes for a pretty good life. And along that journey, you're going to have to make a lot of decisions. Right? <laughs> uh, and hopefully the right ones that move you closer to your goal. And so even though it, it is a business book, in the back of my mind with all of my writing really is, are we actually making a positive contribution to society? I suppose maybe that's a bit lofty and, and grandiose, but that's, yeah, that's how I feel about it. If you're not trying to make the world a, a better place in some way, um, then you maybe you should be. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense. You must have seen, you've met lots of entrepreneurs and startups and big corporations, and you must have seen people have terrible times and people have great times. So, purpose yeah, you know, and, and when, it, when it starts to go wrong, uh, especially in a startup, if people put a lot on the line, uh, or, you know, people take a job thinking that it's going to be there, just huge break for them, or it's going to set up the next phase of their life, and it's you know, it starts to come off the rails. There's a lot of soul-searching and, and, and stuff that goes on. In fact, you know, I can give you an example of this, which was a, a really great feeling, and it's just the best thing about being a writer when this kind of thing happens. I had one experience with, with the grid where I, where I showed it to someone, and they had their own startup, and it was, it was not going right. And they said it felt like, I'd, like they were drowning and I'd thrown them a life ring. 
right? So it does make a huge difference to your life when I think when yeah, how, how, how things go in your work life is, is important. I mean, you spend all your time doing it, right? <laughs> Working, so you may as well enjoy it and find it rewarding and fulfilling you know, if you can. So. so it all starts with, uh, the book all starts with uh, an anatomy textbook. It all starts with, you have a, with a dodgy pain and then it leads to the philosophy of, of the thinking about things as a whole. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, what, what kicked the book off uh, the inspiration, if you like, was when I had that uh, knee surgery that I talked about in the introduction. So they operated on both my knees at the same time, which was tremendous fun, as I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> and it didn't actually solve the problem. And I tried all these other different things. I went to osteopaths, I went to physiotherapists, nothing really worked. And it was only when I encountered this uh, sports rehab specialist uh, called Nicole. And she took these photos of me uh, from kind of different angles and said, well, the problem is that your, your muscles are imbalanced, your hips are actually off axis with your kind of knees and slightly right. twisted. So you're always going to have pain in, in your knees until you you take care of that. You know? And so she was really the first person who was looking at it as a whole, because uh, the body is a whole. In fact, corporation, the word corporation derives from, means like of one body. Wow. So, um, but I kind of realized, well, uh, you know, business is exactly like that, but everybody has a kind of surgical approach where they go to the, to the source of the pain and they start kind of tampering around with that without really realizing that everything's interconnected. So the problem could be you know, somewhere completely different. So yeah, I was, uh, in, in one of my sessions with her and I said, Oh, is there any light reading on, on anatomy <laughs> kind of thing that, I can look at that explains this stuff. And she pointed me in the direction of a book called Anatomy Trains, mm. which is all about this, uh, these things called myofascial meridians, which is like how everything in, in the kind of musculature or tissue of, of the body is, is interconnected. And that referenced all sorts of other books on systems. And before I knew it, I was like way down in the rabbit hole, <laughs> uh, like reading all these different things about, about systems. And I think that you know, as with the first book, stealing all that stuff from the kind of Stanislavski system, I think there's there's so much that you can do in business just by looking at another discipline and, and saying, oh, I'll have that. <laughs> you know, how can we lift and shift uh, and, and put that? So that was how it all started. And then I, you know, from there, I, I got really into kind of looking at systems. And the if I were to give myself a little bit of credit, which I, I try to avoid doing. Go on. <laughs> But one time won't hurt. Like the only the only real insight that I had that for some reason other people hadn't had, I, I thought, was everyone knows a business is a system because everything's interconnected. But what systems thinkers were trying to do was they were trying to apply systems thinking to a business individually. So they might go to a company and then they'd model the I don't know, the flow of information or the yeah. money or whatever around yeah. the company. But the one saving grace or kind of flash of insight I guess that I had was that well a business must be a particular kind of system where the same rules apply to uh, all of them so that was what led to the grid was trying to get down into the kind of strata of what kind of system is a business and what are the, the levers and what are the rules and that was where the, the model came from it was basically that one lucky break <laughs> if you like that, that led to the model so you're a business masseuse <laughs> business with suits I like it I might, I might run with I might run with that although I, I do say in the book you should try and avoid this uh, 
Paul's Aaron and inventing a new category, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I might be running uh, contrary to my own advice there. So on that, can you give us a brief oversight of the grid? Yeah, so I mean, the grid is is a is basically a, a tool to to help people make better business decisions by seeing um, the broader consequences of, of those decisions. Um, so you can say, if we change this thing here, like if we cut this cost or we spend this money on advertising, how is that going to affect every kind of crucial element of the, the business that matters? It's the first model, really, or at least I hope it is, because <laughs> I'm putting quite a lot on this. First business mistakes, I is know. It? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the first, uh, it's kind of the first model that gives you a plan view uh, that allows you to look down on, on a business from above and see uh, cause and effect when you're making decisions. But that, that's not really the only use of it. Um, you can use it to, if you're launching a new business, you can work through each element of the grid individually, almost like a checklist. So you'll be thought of that, we thought of that, because you only need to miss one thing, uh, and you're in, in real, you're in a pickle, basically. And then uh, if you're, uh, if you have an, uh, a current business that you're running, uh, you can use the grid to kind of identify uh, the strengths and weaknesses in, in what you're doing as well. So it kind of provides a, just a, it's mental scaffolding to help you think. Basically. Okay. The way the, the, the structure, do you, do you want to explain the structure of it? Or? Yeah, yeah, briefly. Yeah. So the basic idea, and it, it almost sounds too simple to work, but is that there are three kind of, uh, uh, three kind of aspects of what makes for a great business or a great decision. So the first is, desirability. People don't want what you're selling. Uh, that's kind of a fundamental problem. Then you've got profitability because if it costs you uh, more to make the thing that you're selling than you can make back, then eventually you'll run out of your VC investor's cash. <laughs> yeah. And then finally you've got longevity because the longer you're making that profit for the better and people are pretty reluctant to, um, to buy from business that might disappear. Overnight, for fairly obvious reasons. So, three goals desirability, profitability, and longevity. And you have to make trade offs between those in some way. So, uh, a little bit less desirable, but a lot more profitable might actually be a good decision. But if you take that too far, then you compromise that longevity. So, those are your, your three goals. Now, if, you're, if you've got a pretty good mind's eye, you might want to put those in as column headers, if you like. So, those are your three columns of the grid. But what makes uh, achieving those things difficult in practice is that what it takes to do that is changing all the time. And you've basically got three fundamental layers of change. You've got many different kinds, but three fundamental ones. The first is the customer, who they are and what they want, because if that changes, everything else is going to change. You've got the market and kind of market conditions, which are always changing. Maybe the category is saturated or goes into decline or something like that. And then finally, you've got your own organization, which is, uh, which is always changing too. Maybe we're bigger than we were, so we've got more cash, but we're not as, as nimble as we once were. Now, because everything in the business is interconnected, any of those three kinds of change can affect any of those three goals, right? So uh, a change in the, that kind of customer axis will obviously affect what they find desirable um, or uh, your profit potential. In the same way that your knee affected other part of your body. Well, yeah, yeah. Same way that, you know, your shoulders can uh, cause you knee pain or whatever. So if you take the, the three goals and the three kinds of change you and intersect them, you get nine inseparable factors uh, that, that determine the success or failure of, of every business, basically. Uh, and you only need to ignore one of those nine things. And as we've seen from 
you know, a lot of the recent scandals that have made the headlines, or don't need to be obsessed with one at the expense of the others, the kind of organizational business becomes in balance and, and um, it can have anything from annoying to kind of catastrophic consequences. And then in the book, as you know, have you read it, um, we talk about three kind of fundamental things within each of those boxes that you need to think about. So it gives you this really quite straightforward but, but powerful way of thinking uh, uh, about the, the business. And it's, I hope, really accessible to people. You don't need to be a genius to wield this thing. In fact, I think, I think as we've proven, <laughs> you, <laughs> having written it... You if I can it, understand it, it's probably okay. <laughs> well, if I can write it, it's probably, uh, it's probably okay. I think it's more where I was going with that. So I don't mean to be the man that asks the magician how he does his tricks. How do you even begin taking all the reading that you do and fill it into a grid of nine elements? Is your house full of paper on the walls? Ah, uh, yeah, well, I kind of... Um, I realised maybe after about the first year that that wasn't going to work because because the grid obviously encompasses all these different facets of the business, everything from you know, costs to pricing to marketing to you know, all this other stuff. I would I would need something a bit more structured than that. So I have a a database and I tag the um, all of my notes. You know what they apply to, and I just built that up. And rather frighteningly, it's, it was two hundred and eighty thousand <laughs> words. I think by the time I'd actually uh, uh, finished finished things, and then you just kind of what I do is I try and just read as much as I can, and then look for the underlying themes. So, you know, if you read, uh, let's say, five books on costs, don't do that. <laughs> By the way, uh, you'll you'll find that pretty tedious. But if you if you read like five books on costs and you talk to five CFOs and there are key themes emerging, then you know you're on pretty pretty solid ground. I try and read like one one or two that are mainstream and then a couple that are kind of contentious or a little bit out there. Okay, uh, and, and just yeah, be be thorough and then just look for the underlying themes and and kind of try and just get it as consolidated and and simple as you can and, and iterate. I mean, the grid itself has been through over 150 iterations to try and get it as simple and as clear and as crisp and as kind of bomb-proof as you've got it. you just got to accept that it's a marathon, not a sprint, and um, take your time and take the feedback from people as it comes in. And how long did it take? Uh... Well, I mean, as you probably know yourself, these projects have got like blurry beginnings and an ends. Like the book really ends when you start the next one. <laughs> yeah, I think. But uh, I'm going with four years from having a tingly feeling that there might be something in it. Yeah, through to uh, DHL dropping off my first copy of the house from, uh, from the publisher. Yeah, I think about four years. Two years probably in. In research and proposal writing, yeah, and then um, yeah, but I remember the manuscript really punished me. Like it took a lot longer than I thought. I think it was. I thought we'll be done in six months. We're, <laughs> we've done. We've done so much preparation. Famous last words. I think a year, a year almost to the day on the manuscript, writing between one and two thousand words a day, six days a week. Uh, to end up with just something actually quite short and readable, as you've, you've said. So 
threw away far more than I I kept, but writing is rewriting. Yeah. You know, so. Wow. So you say in your book, all boxes in the grid matter. Do you see one box missing more often when you go around and visit businesses? It's the one that sticks out. Hmm. That's a really good question. I don't know that I can say that there's that there's a pattern. I think the, the pattern is that people inevitably either miss one or they become obsessed with one at the expense of others. So it's really common for you know some companies they just become obsessed with with volume. Like they just want to sell more than their rivals. And as we've seen with some pretty juicy scandals this year, that leads them to ignore other aspects of. Of, of you know what you need to run a successful business, particularly regulation, <laughs> would be one one thing that can can get ignored. Um, I think adaptability. Basically, actually, the stuff in that far right column, longevity. Yeah. That can uh, you know there's a lot of short termist decision making going on. So building up uh, aspects of a business that are inimitable uh, is often something that's that's neglected. You know, and if and if you let that slide, you're just down to kind of price-based competition. Uh, and adaptability is a big one that that's, that's easy to miss. But again, easier said than easier said than done. I mean, if you've got a huge corporation, it's never going to turn on a, on a dime, is it? But people would do well to to think about the implications of the decisions that they make on their ability to to adapt and, and respond to change in the future for sure. Yeah, because a, a lot of people would say that we're going from kind of a long-term decision-making to thinking more about decision outcomes in the short term. Have you seen a similar trend in the businesses that you work with? I see, um, yeah, I see short-termism. I mean, if you're a public company, it's, it's kind of hard to find that impetus to live quarter. But I also see an epidemic level of impatience uh, for either results or to hit milestones or whatever, even in the kind of startup yeah. community. Like they'd rather hit a milestone in the short term than have actually, in, in many cases, and have like a long-term sustainable operation that's going to print cash for them over the next 10, 20 years. But you know, there are plenty of really smart people out there who obviously look look at the, at the bigger picture. I often think it's, it's kind of a weird thing in business, but like you wouldn't dream of turning up at the airport uh, 10 hours late and, and saying to the pilot, well, why can't you just fly faster? Like, why can't you just compress time and get me, get me home on time? And yet it happens all the time in business that people dilly-dally and we mess around for, for years, like wasting time trying to make, make decisions and arguing and all the politics gets in the way. And then when they make the decision, they expect it to be actioned like tomorrow, well, start earlier. <laughs> That's my advice. Like, start earlier than you think you need to, and then you'll have the time to actually do a, do a proper job to overcome that bias. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And um, so, on that, what's the best example of a business that thinks in holes, as you put it, that thinks about the whole system together? Is it startups? Is it big corporations? It's difficult to say. I think. Um, I think there are definitely some people who have a natural systems thinking brain, like a, 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 they're kind of naturally capable of seeing 
a corporation as an interconnected whole where for whatever reason they've got their own mental equivalent of of the grid in their mind that they use um, when they're making decisions. I think there are some leaders who are who are like that. I think there are some entrepreneurs who are like that. I think if you run a small business, you know, say it's like a local florist or a baker or something, even though you probably wouldn't sketch out the grid and say it's these things, you're aware of them because you experience them every day. Like you see your costs going out, you see your revenues coming in, you see whether a customer likes what you're selling or is or is very unhappy, you're not insulated from the reality of the business. You have like high psychological proximity to everything that you're doing. Mm. So it becomes much easier, I think, uh, to think uh, in holes when you're running that kind of operation. I think startups, God, there's just so many different things to think about. It's really easy to forget, to forget something. Uh, so I really hope that the grid's gonna help them. And then in large corporations, it can be very hard to get a sense of the whole because everyone's a specialist. You know, so I'm hoping that the grid is going to really help with that because it provides a kind of lingua franca for these team discussions where if you can agree on the grid, then you can actually start to break down uh, some of the barriers between different departments. Marketing can see the finance view of the world. You know, an accountant can see the implications for the brand of certain decisions. And that's got to be a good thing, right? Uh, everyone's waffling on about silos and... Yeah, that kind yeah, of thing. yeah. So any, any, anything pragmatic that you can do to help that, I think it's, it's going to be really valuable. So is the grid more for senior leadership or is it something that everyone can take a hold of and play their role? Uh, well, I, I can actually bring a, bring a quite a structured answer to that. I, I don't have the exact figures, but there's a free the, copy of the, not the book obviously, but of the, of the model that you can download from the website and PowerPoint templates and that kind of thing. And rather than asking people for an, an email address to get them, we actually ask them what kind of person they are. Uh, we just ask them three survey questions like, what kind of person are you? Have you read the book? And how do you hear about it? You know, it's more valuable to me than some anonymous email address. You know? yeah, so, yeah. And, and, and the people who are, who are responding to it most are senior managers and leaders. Uh, and self-confessed entrepreneurs and there's a huge consultant uh, audience people who identify themselves as consultants because it's a perfect tool to go to a client and go okay tell me about tell me about your business by going around these different things um, and then we can see you know what we've got in our consultant toolkit to help you so it's been really helpful with those clients right um, so is there an example that you have where you've shown someone, you road-tested the grid a little bit, you can see in the buck, is there an example of where the grid's made a real transformative change to the business or has really allowed someone to see the kind of unseen? Uh, yeah, 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 it has. I mean, uh, I wouldn't want to mention any names, but the typical response to the grid um, is that you start sketching it out and they go, yeah, 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 fuck. <laughs> when, they, when they come across the one thing that they just haven't thought about, right? Like, or the, the one yeah. element of, of the model that is absolutely crucial to the success of business but has somehow slipped, slipped through the net. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to name them. Hmm. Uh, you know, it would be, it'd be unprofessional to mention specific circumstances, but I've definitely had the... You know, already, and the book has only been out recently, some pretty hair-raising uh, conclusions that some people have 
are drawn and, and others where you know there's a palpable sense of relief that they've kind of caught it in in time and even in my own you know in my in my own kind of business you know we do consulting and that kind of thing speaking my team and I we naturally refer to it in conversation and it only occurred to me recently you know so we'll say oh well think about a top left box or whatever it only occurred to me recently like how would we be having these conversations without it like it would actually yeah. be yeah. extremely extremely difficult to to do so there's there's been really good interest from people saying oh I want to I want to go around it's like um you piqued my interest let's put the, the business through it and then maybe I'll report back in a year and tell you some of the highs and lows that have that have uh, that have come from that but you know one of the things that I really left a profound impression on me when I was writing the book was you know you see you hear these stats all the time that whatever it is 80% of new businesses fail you know straight out of the gate or however you know new product ideas don't lead to profitable outcomes in a lot of companies and I really saw for the first time when I was working on this exactly why that is and it's because it's hard yeah I mean it's genuinely difficult and, and there's no magic bullet nothing's going to suddenly make that easy to do it's, it is really hard it's really hard to do however smart you are you quite however good your, your idea is but when I saw the grid and, and the elements of it I was like well now I see why the failure rate's so high because you've only got to miss all these things and you're you're in in trouble. You say you finished the book with that you have a newfound admiration for anyone who's creatively leading a business because uh, I think you quoted someone saying there are no silver bullets, only many lead bullets, and so it is a real oh, no, energy more. game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely came away from it with a lot, a lot more. Res- I mean, it's not that I didn't respect, you know, people who discussed this before, but I did come away, I think, with a more, with a deeper appreciation of how hard it is to to lead a, a, a corporation successfully because you've got to manage and juggle all these things, you know. And I'm hoping, you know, back to that idea of well, well-being, it can be pretty lonely trying to run a business. Like, I think if you talk to people who are at the top of a corporation, you know, it, it can be lonely and it can be tough and anything that makes it a little bit easier for you, I think, was really worth doing for me. So, yeah, I was happy to put the hours in and... So the whole book in its whole is, is obviously absolutely brilliant, but there is one piece which is still the most exciting concept you've ever told me about, which is the uh, zone of tolerance. Um, so in your book you say, in 1996, psychologist Daniel Kahneman and a colleague Don Redelmeyer made a discovery that should have permanently changed how we think about customer satisfaction, but it hasn't yet. Can you tell us more? Oh, well, I mean, I'd be, I'd be taking credit for other people's ideas if I suggested that it was my... If it was my idea, but um, so the peak end rule, uh, you know, Dan Kahneman's stuff uh, about how we've kind of got the remembering self uh, and the experiencing self, and uh, the experiencing self is the one who's kind of assessing an experience in the moment, and the remembering self kind of takes a highlight reel of what happened, which is affected by this thing, the peak end rule, and that that's really what determines their their satisfaction right so uh, if you don't know what the peak end rule is I, I, I know that you do but for anyone who's listening it basically says that our perception of an experience is disproportionately affected by how that experience ends uh, and then the other most kind of intense uh, moment of that experience 
Um, so where the, the zone of tolerance stuff came into that was I was trying to think, well, how, how can we apply that systematically? How can we apply that kind of thinking to improve customer experiences? And what I realized was uh, digging around in some ancient literature, by which I mean from the 90s, uh, this guy, <laughs> Leonard Berry, uh, came up with this idea that we've got two kind of levels of expectation when we have an interaction. On the one hand, we've got this is what I'd consider adequate. And on the other hand, we've got this is what I would consider ideal. And then in between those, we've got this kind of mushy gray zone, this zone of tolerance where it's not setting the world on fire, but it's not a disaster either. And his point basically was that we only really remember things that are above what was desirable or below what was adequate for obvious reasons. Like that's why you can drive home on your regular commute and not even be sure how you got to your front door because everything is fitting with existing patterns uh, and expectations and that kind of thing. So my uh, kind of jamming these two concepts together, the peak end rule and then a very stuff, basically led me to the conclusion that if you're just improving interactions or customer experiences a little bit, um, they're probably going to stay within that zone of tolerance. Uh, they're not going to be memorable. And if they're not going to be memorable, then they're not going to affect your, your satisfaction. So that's why companies can spend millions. They try and improve everything. It makes no difference because everything's just homogenized in this kind of mushy gray zone. And no, one actually, no one remembers anything about it. You're far better off just, A, making sure you end on a high, uh, like the, the last interactions are the most important and then sprinkling some kind of semi-random memory makers as I call them along length of the journey that are there just to create a positive memory and obviously make sure you have no negative ones uh, we kind of got this thing going like a memory design approach to customer experience now because it's just obvious that you you know when you when you hear this or when you read about it you're like oh god that does make sense like that's how my own experiences have been. So instead of talking about customer experience design, we should really be talking about how we're designing the, the memory that the customer's going to have and what are we going to do that's memorable. And you see tons of brands who have done this, perhaps unwittingly or perhaps deliberately. But if you take like some really boring stage of the journey, let's say like the safety video on an airline and make it interesting and memorable, don't really remember anything else about flying, maybe you're asleep. You know, someone says, what was your flight like with Air New Zealand or whatever? You know, oh, it's good, because you remember that one positive, funny thing. Like if everything is just dull and professional, you don't remember anything, there's nothing for the brain to latch onto to assess the satisfaction. So anyway, that's all, all in the book, but it is a really interesting concept. I mean, it's one for you, really, isn't it? Well, I mean, the reason why I have so much respect for you is that paper was so dull that you managed to extract something really fascinating out of the, out of the history books and bring it back to life. So that's, that's, a, that's a big wow, um, a lot, achievement. There's a lot of great stuff in the 90s, actually. Probably the best business book that nobody has ever read was um, The Icarus Paradox, which is in the okay. book as well about um, how people basically succeed their way into failure. And I mean, that was written around that time. Danny Miller. Can you tell us about that? Well, he, yeah, his basic idea was that people succeed their way into failure by constantly overemphasizing their strengths until they become weaknesses. So, like, people who are very, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact terminology. Like, people who are very, um, who care a lot about a quality, kind of craftsmen, 
just end up pursuing these kind of irrelevant standards of perfection that nobody right. really cares about. Uh, people who are very innovative or kind of pioneering kind of just drift off into making like irrelevant nonsense so <laughs> it doesn't really solve any problems but kind of gets their technical rocks off. I think you could you could <laughs> kind of say that um, yeah, maybe uh, the other bets aspect of Google before Ruth Porat came aboard mm. was kind of going down that where they're like oh let's have air balloons let's make contact lenses let's do all this crazy stuff and it's all exciting and it's all really interesting but you know they just had too much free reign to pursue everything uh, which is which is great but it hasn't really resulted in any in any hits and then another one of these uh, trajectories was um, the builders become imperialists but businesses that ex- uh, succeed by growing and expanding and entering new uh, businesses they basically bite off more than they can chew and the thing kind of collapses under its own weight you know it's kind of like RBS did under Fred, Fred Goodwin like way over overstretched there like their eyes are bigger than their stomach. So that's a really, really interesting book. I loved it. And it's, it's bloody well written, I've got to say. I did like it. It's really good. Great. Um, which leads me on to my next question. Where do you get all your crazy ideas from? What inspires you? From you, Dan. Aside <laughs> <laughs> from me. Uh, I'm just curious, I guess. I, I mean, I read a lot. I don't really read much in business, actually. Okay. <laughs> So, I, um, I mean, I do if it's, if it's great or if someone recommends it, but I just try and, yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious, I think. I always look at things and go, oh, how does that work? You know, or, or ask myself, like, really stupid questions and then, you know, try and answer them. And I just, I don't know, I, I love learning. It's, it's that simple. I kind of just follow my nose, you know, and I say, what can I, what can I learn from that? You know, when I see something that's that's interesting, or how could we apply that to this, or how could I connect these two totally unconnected ideas and come up with with a new, you know? So I I, I read a lot, ask a lot of questions, I hang out, I guess, with people who are, are like-minded and kind of have a seeking seeking spirit. I mean, I learn a lot from my wife actually. She's totally different to me. What does I mean, she do? She, totally. She, she works in TV and is a kind of expert on Shakespeare and okay. is really into Jungian analysis and <laughs> those kinds of things. So I, I actually learned quite a lot from her. I mean, so there's all, all, all sorts that you can learn from from looking at disciplines outside of your own. I think you're probably better off looking at any discipline other than your own, basically, if you're looking for new ideas. Because if, if everybody... If everybody just reads the books of their field, and everyone's thinking it's going to converge, right? So yeah. you've got to kind of break out of that and go, I like trees. What can I learn about trees? Okay, I've learned this about trees. How does that, you know, how, um, I don't know why I pick trees, but how, how might I, uh, I apply that to, to this? Or I love architecture, you know. Uh, I mean, an architecture in many ways is it's very much about synthesis and creating Yeah, things. yeah, yeah. Bring things together, you know. So yeah, I just look, trying to keep my eyes open and pursue a lot of different interests and try and bring them all together. Outside of this, this idea about lateral categories, I think is really interesting. And around, I remember there's one case study where um, I think two surgeons are watching Formula One change 
tyres. We were watching Formula One agents change tyres in 1.6 seconds and they realised, wow, how, how do we muck up so many patient handovers when they can change a tyre in 1.6 seconds? And I think the learning in the end was that if you have one person doing one job, the way that Formula One will change tyres so quickly is that one person to unscrew the nut, one person puts the tyre off, one person puts right. the new tyre on. So when they do um, surgery handovers now, you don't have several people doing several jobs. You have one person who signs the form, one person who plugs in, one person who plugs out, and they learn from different categories. So I think there must be so much more left to be farmed out there from different industries, like you say. Oh, for sure, man. And you know, the other thing is that I genuinely believe that you can learn something from everyone that you meet, even if actually what you learn is what not to do. Right? <laughs> but you can, you you know, if you have that kind of spirit of just wanting to to learn and kind of be curious, you can learn something from from anything. You know, um, yeah. I love it. Basically, I mean, there's no other way of describing it. I love. I'm in love with ideas. I just love ideas, you know. Some people, some people like to write books because they think they're going to make make money. But I just want to make money so that I can write books. <laughs> you know, like it's it's exactly it's, it's the opposite way around. Like I ideas are the, the currency that's of greatest value to me personally, right? and, and and a lot of other people are like that. Like they're really turned on by using their brain, by thinking, and you know the thing that I really love to do is just to crack the case. Like to have some idiotic problem and think I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a go. Like I might not succeed, but at least I'll I'll give it a go. And if I crack the case, it will be an amazing feeling, and then move on to the next thing. Right? So, do you have a favourite idea that has, that has never never happened yet, but you just still can't forget? It's only kicking around. Oh well. No, I need a new one now. I mean, the one that has been kicking around for the last four years is now in print. So yeah, I'm, I'm on the hunt for a new idea as we speak, but I don't, I don't really have one. So there's a, a fertile void, I think, growing. <laughs> fertile void. It's growing Love somewhere. It. <laughs> um, so finally then, um, if we talk again, or when we talk again in five years' time, how will the world have changed in terms of people thinking about businesses in terms of systems as a whole or do you think it's going to be a harder slog Ooh, uh, predictions are, uh, are uh, making predictions is, uh, we can play this back to you in 2020 <laughs> <laughs> I really don't like making predictions because I'm, I'm certain that they're probably going to be wrong okay. what I hope will, will happen if this book you know does well and, and gets picked up and gets a lot of traction what I hope will happen is that people will become more aware of the fact that things are a system and that they're interconnected. I hope that people will invest more time and energy in not just deepening their specialist knowledge, but actually broadening their general knowledge, because we're all part of the same thing, right? The business as a whole. If you know that your decision is going to have a, an effect on some other aspect and you don't consider it, and then, then that's, that's bad, right? So basically every serious discipline is moving to a systems-based way of seeing the world, like ecosystems in nature, or uh, complex adaptive systems in maths, or, or physics, or, or academia, or that kind of thing, even economics, right? I mean, we can't let economics... Even economics. <laughs> even economics is moving into, you, you know, if you read like Brian Arthur's stuff about uh, complexity in, in the economy and stuff. 
or a Santa Fe Institute. Everything is moving to a complex systems-based view of the world. And uh, it just seems obvious to me that, that that is the reality of business, whether we choose to embrace it or not. You know, so I, I, I hope, I really hope, purely for the good of society and for other people, that we start to think in systems war, because ultimately everything is a system. And there have been so many problems caused in society by people ignoring the second-order effects of the decisions that they're making. Okay. You know, so, I mean, I, I, I was about to say, don't quote me on this, but it's being, it's being recorded. Okay. So, uh, uh, but I, I read, I read uh, something, and I, you'll have to forgive me because I don't know the exact, the exact kind of specifics of it, but a few years ago we had this terrible flooding in the Thames Valley, uh, around where I lived at the time before I moved to the States, and we're like, what are we going to do? We need flood defences. This is a disaster. You know, and then I read this really thought-provoking article, and they're basically saying, "Well, the problem is these kind of um, these subsidies that farmers have been getting in Wales. That's actually what's caused the flooding." Because I think I'm not entirely sure on the specifics of it, but it was something like they got more money if they converted these fields to these certain kinds of crops, and then at certain times of the year, like the soil is loose and the water just runs straight off instead of being caught in the roots of trees or plants and everything, runs straight up into the water, and then, then that causes the flooding downstream kind of thing. So you think, like, a politician somewhere has made a decision uh, where they're thinking, this is, this is a great decision, this is going to help these people, and I'm sure with good intentions. And the, the second-order effect of that is that it floods half of Berkshire. Right? <laughs> and, and that's because everything's in, interconnected. Yeah. So the only way that we're gonna, really going to progress as a society, I think, and, and in business, especially what with it becoming so you know, dynamic and fast-paced and complex, that the scale of some of these things is massive, um, is, is to start to try and look one level above. There, there's a, another brilliant quote that I'm going to paraphrase and garble for you, but it basically said, you can't solve a problem really on the level on which it was created. You need to go a level up and, yeah. and look down on it. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think the grid will help people do that for, for business decisions. And I think that's where we need to go in, in general, whether it's economics or politics or, or whatever. So, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll see that change, if not five years, in, in our lifetime. <laughs> Matt Watkinson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Overhay podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, of course. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks to Matt and Dan for a great interview. Matt's book, The Grid, the decision-making tool for every business, including yours, is available on Amazon, as is his first book, The 10 Principles Behind Great Customer Experiences. As always, you can follow at Ogilvy Change on Twitter and like us on Facebook. We post every week on the Obehave blog, o-behave.tumblr.com, about something interesting we found in the world of behavioral science. And finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Sound Lounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways. Special thanks to Ruth Simmons for introducing us to the world of sound branding, and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>